This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP. Thank you for joining me. Wow, can you believe we've almost almost come up to about 200 episodes here on AHB. It just blows my mind that we've been running since around March of 2011. It's absolutely fantastic, and uh, I'm glad to still be here doing the show, and I'm glad all the listeners are still with me. I want to thank you very much. All the people that write in, all the people that send emails, all the people that send voicemails, I just wanted to say thank you very much and all the thumbs up uh, on iTunes as well. So just going through a bit of that a bit early before we start the show, of course, if you want to email us, Australian Hunting Podcast at gmail.com. Of course, leave us a thumbs up and leave us a review on iTunes, guys. I'd really, really appreciate that. And if you want to have your email on the show, email, as I just said previously. But if you also want to leave a voicemail too, go to australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Click on that right-hand side bar. You'll see the leave a voicemail icon. Now, I think it's about 90 seconds. So make sure you try and get it within 90 seconds or send me a second subsequent follow-up audio file as well and uh, happily played on the show like to get your opinions because ultimately what you guys think of what's happening in the industry about hunting shooting fishing firearms laws send us in we'd love to discuss it if you've got something on your mind of course i want to thank all my patreon supporters if you want to throw a few bucks my way let's say you've been listening to the show for quite a long time and you're not supporting on patreon guys for five dollars a month i'd love to have you with us go to patreon.com forward slash ahp you will get all shows of the podcast in advance of all users want to thank all those guys when i'm having a bit of a (laughs) meltdown you might say I'm always able to sit back and rely on Patreon supporters to sort of set me straight on certain issues. I know we had a few issues uh, during the New South Wales election, and uh, a lot of the guys set me straight uh, on that. So I want to thank all the guys that support on Patreon. You guys are the best, man. Without you guys, I couldn't keep doing what I do. Of course, I want to thank the sponsors that sponsor the show as well. I really appreciate those guys too. Now, getting into the show, I thought I would just do a bit of a disclaimer before going on with this interview. For a long time, guys, I've pretty much avoided talking about Port Arthur. I just didn't really see there to be any value in dredging up the past. The only times I really discuss or even talk about Port Arthur is when I'm discussing the subsequent firearms laws that were put in after 1996 by the then Prime Minister John Howard. So the person that's coming onto the show wrote a book called The Second Empty Chair, The Port Arthur Paradox. Now, when I did the show, I actually sent this out to quite a number of people, about four or five people saying, guys, listen, is this something I can actually put out? Are people going to be upset by some of this content? The replies that I got back from people were like, this is too good not to put out. They were absolutely riveted by this podcast. Uh, So I decided to obviously put it out. But there's a few things I guess I want to relay my position on the show first. Uh, Obviously, first, anyone that comes onto the show, guys, that's been on the show for a long time, over the years, I've had almost 200 guests. Their opinions are theirs and theirs alone. Unless you specifically hear it come out of my mouth, it's not the opinion or necessarily the opinion of AHP. So I wanted to make that abundantly and absolutely clear to people. So since I've never really spoken about Port Arthur, I want to give you a couple of different things just before I go forward. There is no doubt in my mind that 35 people died at Port Arthur. That did happen. And anyone that's saying that didn't happen, I think is a little bit shameful. Going forward from that too, I also think Martin Bryant did do it as well. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that Martin Bryant did it. Like I said, I wasn't there that day. I don't know how things played out. I was only 16 years old at the time, but there's no doubt in people's minds that Port Arthur did happen. 
Going on from that, one of the major concerns I have personally, and I think this was discussed a fair bit in the show as well, was the locking up of information. This is the main concern that I have surrounding the whole thing. When obviously Port Arthur happened, they locked down all information for a period of 25 years. Now, just previously, just recently, I should say, the Tasmanian government moved to lock down and secure that information from public eyes for a period of a further 75 years. So now nobody can look up that information for almost 100 years. Now, the Tasmanian government says the reason they've done that is to protect the interests and feelings of the people and the family members of Port Arthur, and they don't want to subject them to any more stress or any more emotion than they already have, which I can completely understand. But also, I'm a person that believes in democracy, and I think people should be able to see that information. And I think locking up information for 25 years, then a further 75 years is not not democracy and I think I understand nobody wants to upset the victims or their families that's the absolute last thing you want to do but I do believe in democracy and I think I'm sorry I just I do believe that uh, democracy trumps people's feelings I do believe that and uh, this is something that that I think they should allow people to look at and I don't see the reason why it should be locked up for 100 years if we look at just what happened in Christchurch just recently Jacinda Ardern one week after the Christchurch massacre announced there'd basically be a Royal Commissioner inquiry into what happened at Christchurch. And uh, I think a lot of people are waiting for a Royal Commission, what happened at Port Arthur, at least surrounding the processes uh, of what happened and how it was handled. I think ultimately, you know, a lot of people even think some of the, the victims and their families would want that finalized and put to rest. Like I said, that's just my personal opinion. I believe Martin Bryant did it. 35 people are dead. And that, that's what I believe before I get into the show. So I just wanted to make that abundantly clear. I remember several years ago when I interviewed Coalition Against Duck Shooting's Laurie Levy, some people got upset about that, saying, why would I interview people from the left or why would I interview people with differing values? But that's the whole point of the show. If I just keep interviewing people that have got the same opinions of me, it's just going to turn into an echo chamber. I guess somewhat it may already be that because the fact is, guys, it's very hard to get people that don't agree with what we do uh, onto the show. It's very, very hard. I've asked people like Samantha Lee, I've asked the Greens, I've asked David Shoebridge. You just never hear back from these people. And uh, that's some of the best content sometimes is listening to people that actually disagree with our way of life and actually discussing that and finding out where they're actually coming from. I think I think that's good. But again, like I said, a lot of these people won't present on the show. Either they can't defend their opinion or they just refuse to. And they think maybe someone like me is a, is a lost cause because I'm never going to stop hunting, shooting and fishing. And that'd be exactly right. So, you know, sometimes as a good host, that's what you have to do. You know, when the guests come on the show, it's their opinion on the show, and uh, they want to share that opinion, whatever that may be, whether that's something you agree with or whether that's something you disagree with. I think ultimately that's going to make for a better show. So I hope you like the content from here on in. I hope you enjoy it. Please email me if uh, you've got any concerns. Please email me about what you thought about this show at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com because I'd love to hear what your thoughts and opinions were on the show. So the person I'm interviewing is Oscar Zimmerman. He's been here on the show before. Of course, that name is is a pseudonym and uh, he'll come onto the show in just a little bit to discuss the reasons I guess why he used the name and what prompted him uh, to write this book Uh, so let's bring him on the show Oscar Zimmerman welcome to AHP thank you for uh, joining me it's a pleasure to have you here uh, talking about uh, your book that you wrote The Second Empty Chair and obviously guys you know Oscar Zimmerman is is a pseudonym so we just want to make that clear just before getting into uh, the show thanks for joining me here uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Obviously, for security reasons, I didn't want to use my real name, so Oscar Zimmerman was just something that came to me one night, and it worked, so it is what it is. Perfect. So you wrote, and we've got the book right here, The Second Empty Chair, The Port Arthur 
paradox. And uh, it looks like a picture of a table, two chairs, um, with a firearm leaning up against the table. So I guess, first off, tell us what uh, prompted you to write uh, such a book. Obviously, this is a topic I've probably never really touched on on the show, and I guess I've purposely done that for several reasons. Sometimes I see what value can possibly be achieved, but Mm -hmm. of course, as you can understand, a lot of people do have questions, I guess, surrounding how it was handled during that time. A lot of opinions of what should have happened, what shouldn't have happened, and uh, what prompted you, I guess, to write this book? What what interest did you have in it? I had kind of been interested over a long time. Uh, I was only young when it happened and believed the official story, thought he was a bad man. It, it was all done and dusted. And then during the course of my life, you, when the 20-year anniversary came around, there was a lot of people on social media who were presenting contrary uh, opinions. And uh, a lot of those things really didn't gel with what I'd been told. So I started to look into it. And you've t- you talked a bit about the picture on the front. It's a combination of two themes that uh, are major in the Port Arthur uh, context. The two chairs and the table are taken from a Judy Tierney. She's a journalist f- who attended Martin Bryant's house shortly after the police broke into it. And she said that most of the house was pretty messy, except for one side room that was immaculately clean and it had a table, two chairs and some shooting magazines on it. And it looked like people had just sat there in the night and then got up and left, never to, to return. And so Martin Bryant lived alone in the house. The question is, who was sitting in the second empty chair? The firearm that's leaning up against it is my own drawing of uh, FN FAL, uh, what the Australians would call an SLR. And it was found broken on the roof of one of the seascape outbuildings after the main house had burnt down. And if you look very closely at the picture, you'll see I've drawn some smoke curling from the top of the barrel. It's literally the smoking gun of this whole case. Bryant didn't own it. Um, He'd never seen it before. And yet it was left there, uh, obviously fired by somebody. And uh, if you listen to the McCarthy tape of the, uh, the siege, you can hear the gunshots in the background while Jamie is talking about... Uh, the, the hostages he's got, you can hear the gunshots cracking out in the background. So the, it's a it's a montage, it's it's two images combined of the questions that really fired my interest. Where did this gun come from and what was it doing there and who was the person sitting in the second empty chair? So uh, from th- those questions, I developed this plot over uh, probably six months or so that really develops around who the shooter was at Port Arthur, what his story was. That section of it is complete fiction uh, because, obviously, we don't know who who it is. I've since received information and learned some things that give me some pointers, uh, which I'll talk about a bit later. But the the key issue is Martin has a pretty good alibi for not being in the cafe. He did not have the money to pay the entry fee to get in and was nowhere in the area at the time the shootings happened. Um, so the, the how he describes his... Uh, arrival at Seascape is consistent with him being drugged with Rohypnol, the date rape drug. So, uh, I, I've, as I said, I don't want to talk about theories, but there's there's a lot of questions about how he came to be at Seascape, whether he actually did the shooting, and of course the incredible accuracy of the the shots inside the cafe. So, where can you buy the book from? What forms can you buy the book in? Give me a bit of a background on that. Uh, it's available on Amazon Kindle for international readers. Kindle Australia for Australian readers. Uh, you can get it in paperback from the same uh, places. But if you want to support a local publisher, lulu.com 
uh, has uh, has paperbacks as well. And uh, if you just find me on social media or my blog is www.portarthurinquiry.blogspot.com. There's links to, to buy there in whatever format you like. Talking about the book, I guess, what type of book is it? Uh, you know, is it a theory-based book, evidence-based book, a fiction-based book? Tell us a bit more, I guess, where it falls on that particular spectrum. Technically, the genre is called historical fiction, where it's based around uh, key elements that did happen, yet um, parts of the storyline are fiction. So as you read through it, you'll see there are footnotes which refer to the court documents or witness statements for uh, people who saw or, or, or did things. But then I've had to build part of a fiction around there to sort of fill in the gaps because the official story has been described as having uh, more holes than a pastafarian's colander. And so I needed some poetic license to fill in what could have happened, who said what to who in the background. None of that changes the fact that, yes, it is fiction, but the questions remain. Uh, the key points of the uh, of the, the events that happened, I believe, are faithfully represented in the book because they're footnoted with the, the official evidence that I have available. How much research went into the book? Because I want to talk about that. It was obviously, I can imagine this probably would have been Fairly arduous, a lot of things to to go over, uh, a lot of witness statements. Tell us about the research uh, process uh, of getting all that information and you know collaborating all that together, and you know starting the writing of the book. Well, to to quote Isaac Newton, I've stood on the shoulders of giants. There's been thousands of hours of research done. Uh, fortunately, that was collated by people like Stuart Beatty. Um, and others who have published their own books on the the topic. And I have read through those books and uh, sort of um, combined a lot of what they've said. Um, the the classic story of Pauline Hanson saying she read a blue book about Port Arthur, uh, that was Joe Viles's Deadly Deception. I've read that. I don't agree with everything he says. Um, and as a, as a statistician, I, I deal with probabilities. And so I don't think it's necessary for there to be a, a whole range of other conspiracies if you want to call them uh, I think that what happened can be explained by a fairly simple series of events and so that's what I've tried to do I've tried to stick to what is the minimum necessary to explain what happened so the other books that have been written have been more like textbooks which simply go through and point out uh, inconsistencies with the evidence compared to the official story and so what I've tried to do is take those dry, uh, sometimes difficult to read books and turn it into what reads like a Tom Clancy or a Lee Child action thriller with real life characters who have uh, character flaws and problems and struggles and yet still keep it consistent to what we believe actually happened and what the witness statement says happened. How did you get access to all the evidence materials? Because I'm sure that would have been quite interesting, uh, you know, dealing with government agencies possibly at some stage. What was the process and what did you have to do in regards to, I guess, evidence materials? Did you have to contact, you know, government agencies? Tell us about that process as well. I was very fortunate because Paul Moda is making a film of the, the massacre called Wasp, which I recommend everybody uh, look and follow on social media. Uh, he has a Dropbox folder, a zip file, with about 15 gig worth of books and videos and photos and, and other evidence. A lot of the books that I've got are digitised in that in that folder, and it's linked on my blog. It's one of the very first things I published when I put the blog up. So if you're, if you're interested in looking at the data behind this, uh, what we've got 
Most of that is available on this uh, zip file, which you can download. Other times I have been very, very uh, unlucky, if you like, uh, because I've re- I've made freedom of information requests to a lot of government agencies in Tasmania. I've made inquiries with the Historical Society, trying to find details that would uh, verify certain things and really come up against a brick wall. Even the state archives in their, their state library, uh, I was trying to follow the money and I wanted information about the Victims of Crime Compensation Fund. Martin Bryant's estate was seized and uh, and the funds were dispersed. Some of it went to the victims, but a lot of it remains unaccounted for. And uh, the the email I got back was very polite that said the uh, the, arc, the files I want are locked for 25 years and uh, can't be accessed without the approval of the Department of Public Prosecutions. So they've got even these uh, incidental documents are, are locked away. And uh, as you, if you follow myself or Paul Motor on social media, you'll see just recently the Tasmanian government digitised all of the physical evidence that they had and uh, and locked it away for a further 75 years that's only visible to the police minister himself. So you and I are likely to be long dead by the time those documents are released, which of course begs the question, what are they hiding? Um, they've just made a TV series about Ivan Malat, uh, obviously based on using reference to documentation and police procedures that... Uh, were used to catch him. Why can't we do the same thing with Martin Bryant? What's the difference between Ivan Malat and Martin Bryant that they've locked that information away for a further 75 years? And that's the, the, the main call for everybody is just for clarity. If you're concerned about conspiracy theories, the, the way to dispel them is to produce the evidence and say, this is what happened. If we made a mistake, admit to it. And, and then all the, or any trauma, the victim's families get closure. Um, and and all of the theories are dispelled because we know what happened. There's no more theory. Uh, that's not happening in this case. So um, other evidence, I've tried to speak to a number of people. I've tried to track down Petra Wilmot. Uh, she obviously changed her name and disappeared and uh, only speaks to certain media people. There's a couple of people who have contacted me on Facebook. They've commented, participated in uh, comment sections on my Facebook page who were um, involved in the in the shooting. But the vast majority of people either don't respond to my my emails or my, my requests or are simply dead. Uh, Wendy Skur is deceased. Um, the and who, who who's Wendy Skur? Who's uh, she? Yeah, Wendy Skur was the first aid officer at Port Arthur, so she was an employee of the uh, the, the cafe who was not taken away for the Sunday morning seminar. So she was left behind. She. Uh, treated a lot of the wounded. She treated Dennis Olson for shotgun wounds and was quite outraged when the the prosecution said that the shotgun was not used in the shooting. Um, the prosecution said that it remained in the boot of the Volvo until they found it at the toll booth, but Wendy Skur is quite certain that she picked shotgun pellets out of Dennis Olson. Uh, she maintained... Uh, she was quite outraged with the, the lack of response and the poor response from the police and everybody in... She was outraged by the police response, the, the, the government response, just everything uh, concerning the whole aftermath, and actually toured around Australia several times doing public talks on things that she felt were wrong with the official story and, uh, and, and really making quite a nuisance of herself, if you, in inverted commas, for the official story. 
uh, it got to such a point where she was physically threatened. Uh, somebody sent a plaque to her home that contained the words quit 96 on it. And so uh, she, uh, her own family's protection, she then stopped speaking out. Like I said, she lived in Queensland. She passed away recently. And I certainly hope she found peace because she tried she tried really, really hard to set the record straight, but the weight of media against her uh, really was... Un- she, she was unable to, to push back against it. With the Tasmanian government putting... Was it the Tasmanian government that put the lock on the information for the next 75 years? I mean, I can, I can imagine that's concerning not just for people that were there at Port Arthur, victims, etc., but just in general that you can't get access to, to information uh, and it's been locked away for 75 years. I mean, it's already been 25, 23, 24 years and now another 75, so that ensures pretty much this generation will never ever get to see that information. Yeah, it was the Tasmanian government, um, and as I commented to somebody previously, even if you know, even if some political party decided, uh, like at the federal level, decided to call a royal commission, what you're dealing with is the issue of federal jurisdiction versus states' rights. And in 1996, gun control was the massive hot issue. Like in New Zealand at the moment, they had massive moral. Uh, wait to push through as much legislation as they could, make as many changes as they could, and yet they were not able to get a national gun control program in place. All they could get was the NFA, which is an informal agreement between the states to try and be consistent. And so what you saw was the strength of the states' rights versus the federal government. And in a little place like Tasmania... The people who are in power obviously have a lot of power and they are not going to relinquish it without a significant fight. And as we've seen, they've locked the evidence away for another 75 years and believe themselves to be immune from scrutiny. So um, it's it's a really sad situation and it poses a very uh, significant warning to everybody because the, the same principle applies. If they can do this to Martin Bryant, they can do it to anyone. None of us are safe if they can do this. And then if it was your family member who's uh, locked away, um, uh, even though they're innocent, they can hide the evidence for 75 years and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, There's a word for that. It's called a police state. And as we've seen in Eastern Europe, they're not nice places to be. Most people try and leave police states and come to democracies where there's scrutiny and accountability. And this case... And I think, as we'll see with the New Zealand case, the New Zealand media have recently said they will censor the reporting of the the trial in order to, in inverted commas, uh, not give publicity to his hate speech. Well, when the press is censored, whether they do it voluntarily or not, that's that's a big warning bell. That's a big red light for any free democracy that it's going away and it does not bode well for the future. When you send emails or you call people or asking for more information and they either duck or they weave, they don't want to give information or they just don't get back to you, why do you think that is? Just in general, you think it's just because it's a touchy subject? Possibly because it's a touchy subject. Uh, The majority of people that I'm dealing with are government departments who have their own um, internal codes of conduct, their own rules and regulations, and I'm quite sure this is a topic where anybody who comes into the job uh, is told, the, here's a list of topics that are off topic and we do not discuss them with anybody. And I'm sure Port Arthur is one of them. Um, the, 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 the other issue is I may be talking to the wrong person. Um, they may, the, the, for instance, 
there's an ad that was placed up on the internet for the sale of the morgue truck once it was uh, not, ended being used at Port Arthur. It was put up for sale. There's an email address on the bottom of that to contact the owner. I've emailed that, and the, the, the server just bounces back saying this email address is no longer in existence. So um, it's, it, it's getting to the point where people are passing away. People don't want to talk about it anymore because they think, what's the point? Um, just give up. Uh, and so it's what we've got is enough for what the lawyers call reasonable doubt. Um, if Martin Bryant had maintained his not guilty plea and forced it to go to a trial, uh, I believe that any lawyer could have um, gotten him off simply by reasonable doubt. There were so many holes in the police prosecution case that it, it would not have held water. And I believe that's why John Avery was switched in to be his defence lawyer, in inverted commas. And in Carlene's book, Carlene Martin's mother, uh, she admits that uh, John Avery and her basically deceived Martin and told him that she would not come and visit him anymore unless he pled guilty. And you, you just imagine, this guy's got an 11-year-old mentality. He's got a 66 IQ. So he's the age of a, stu- a school kid, and he's been in solitary confinement for five months. You know, concrete box, and on the other end of the door is a metal cage that he can exercise in. That's his world. He's not talking to anybody. There's no green grass. There's no blue sky. And his mother and his trusted defence lawyer say to him, you've got to plead guilty or you're going to rot alone in this box for the rest of your life. Talking about witnesses and that, did you get to speak to uh, any witnesses, anyone that was there, um, victims or anything like that, or you just relied on uh, witness statements? And if so, how did you get access to those statements? Is that something that uh, Paul Moda, uh, who's making the movie, got access to? Is that where a lot of the information came from? Yes, it is. Um, the, and again, this is the, the information that's been gathered by other people and is in these books in the Dropbox file. There's a lot of witness statements there. Uh, of course, not all of them, because the police had to gather something like 300 witness statements from, from people all over the world. Uh, but there's, th- what's in there is enough to, to, to show reasonable doubt. Um, I haven't spoken to anybody specifically, apart from a couple of people on, on the internet who've commented on my posts. Apart from the neighbours of a couple who were there, this couple is now deceased, but they were on the on the ferry. And the, long story short, uh, what they saw, they they rang up the police and said, uh, we were on the ferry, and this blonde guy, it was about to leave, and this blonde guy with a big bag ran up and wanted to get on the boat. And he, uh, the ferry captain said, oh, sorry, I can't take you, we're full. And so he went back in uh, inside, and the ferry went on its cruise, and then the shooting happened. And uh, this couple apparently rang up the police and said, you know, we've got information. We saw the guy and uh, and the, the person took their phone number down. They never got a call back. And in their opinion, the police didn't just weren't interested in what they had to say. So, uh, like I said, uh, people are passing away and in, in time, everybody's going to be dead. And all we're going to have left is the actual evidence. So that's partly why I wrote this book, to try and get people questioning it and, and, and realising, hey, there's a lot more to this than I initially thought, and a lot of what's footnoted in the book is not, um, not consistent with the official story. So there's, there's definite questions there, and there's reasonable doubt. We, we need a retrial. It's that simple. So when you are writing the book, did uh, any, obviously, information, you were putting your feelers out there for information, trying to get access to uh, more evidence, information, as which, you know, could be quite difficult. 
Um, did anyone say well, when you're asking for this information, why did you want this information? What was the purpose of the information? Uh, any people sort of getting a bit antsy you asking about said information? Was there any resistance other than the no contact type situation when you were asking them, can I get access to this? Either no response, but did you get any other times where there may have been a bit of angst from someone when you were trying to get the information or no? I did have a phone call from the Justice Department in Tasmania when I lodged the first Freedom of Information request. Um, and it was really just a formality to say, we've received the paper and we've received your payment, which is the fee, and so we're going to process it. But the person definitely asked, you know, what, what are you, why are you interested in, uh, in the case? And I was very vague. I just said, oh, um, there's, there's a film being made and there's a, a, a book in the works and uh, I'm just just interested in it. If it's publicly available, um, you know, I'd like to, to, to look through it. And uh, that the person didn't give me any emotion of their own. Like they didn't try and criticise me or, or support me in any way. It was a very bureaucratic, emotionless call. Uh, but they just said, okay, thank you, and then ended the call. And then about two weeks later, I got a letter from the Justice Department saying, we confirm we've received your application. Uh, we don't have the information you're looking for. That's held by the Department of Public Prosecutions, which is not subject to Freedom of Information Act, uh, legislation. So, which is apparent, I'm not a lawyer, but apparently that's quite unusual for the DPP to hold on to boxes and files and, and the brief of evidence. Uh, ordinarily, apparently, that would go to archives and be archived with the Justice Department. So uh, that's just one other you know, piece of evidence that indicates there's something very, very unusual about this case and the authorities are being very unusually um, uh, sneaky in hiding everything away. Why do you think they're so, I guess, anxious to, to let people get access to the information? I mean, is it, do you think it's you know, the processes they took in regards to what happened? What's your thoughts on that generally? Well, there's, there's two, two things. The first rule of all investigations is follow the money. Uh, Martin Bryant had a fair bit of, uh, he had about half a million dollars of his own, um, which his father's life insurance had left him. Um, but his friend Helen Harvey was the heir to a tax lotto fortune. In, in Tasmania, the lottery was, was a privately run business. And uh, the, the original founder, George Adams, died without any children, and he divided up the business in his estate between his friends and business associates. The lottery manager was a man named David Hasty Harvey, and he received one-tenth of the, the shares, effectively, in the lotto. So that provided an asset and an income stream because every year the lotto had a profit and his family benefited substantially from that. So they were very wealthy landowners, horse racers, breeders uh, down in Tasmania, politically active, of course. And uh, and then his, his children and grandchildren then inherited that when he passed away. So Helen was born uh, in 1936, mildly intellectually disabled. She could you know, she could get around. She 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 held a job for a little while, but she didn't need to work. She was receiving uh, quite a quite a lot of money every year that paid her living expenses. And one day, there's a knock on the door. This young blonde-haired guy says, "Oh, do you need me to be a gardener?" That was Martin Bryant. Uh, both of them had had slight mental illnesses and didn't because they were both similar. Uh, didn't see anything wrong with each other, so they formed a fast friendship. And, and didn't uh, sort of poke fun at each other like normal society uh, looked at them as being deficient, strange, backward. 
um, disabled, uh, both of them didn't have the, that sort of judgment. So they, they were fast friends and uh, lived together in this big house and spent a lot of money because the money was there to spend. They didn't have the usual, uh, you know, save for the future mentality. Uh, Helen Harvey died in a car crash and Martin Bright inherited everything. And I don't know how much Helen was worth because her her records are sealed, but both of their estates were managed by the public trustee in Tasmania. And when all of this happened, there was a public appeal for, for funds. The state government had to chip in funds for victims of crime. They cried poor and they appealed to the federal government for funds to help with uh, lost tourism and, and and paying victims' compensation and uh, counselling and, and medical care, things like that. So the, the questions around how much Helen was worth and where did that money go... Uh, is certainly one one issue. Um, I'm not the only one thinking that maybe Martin Bryant was selected because of this because he'd just recently inherited this money and people wanted it. Um, you may have seen that uh, Tom Cruise movie One Shot, Jack Reacher. It's based on a book by Lee Child where the the, the opening scene of the book and the movie is there's a mass shooting and five or six people are killed. But as the investigation unfolds, you realise that the other victims were actually just a smokescreen for a hit on one particular person who was uh, giving trouble for the business of the people who who did the shooting. So that is almost a a metaphor or a parable of what could have happened here. Uh, if, If people wanted Martin Bryant's money, he was selected as the patsy, drugged, left to die in the fire... If he had had died in the fire, there wouldn't have been all these questions because it would have just been open and shut case. Boom, he's gone. We're glad he's gone. End of story. The other issue along those lines comes from Petra Wilmot's witness statements. And I, I just discovered this recently. Petra Wilmot made several statements to the police. And unlike most of the other witness statements, hers jump around all over the place. Most of the other witness statements say, this is my name, I did this, this, this and this, and I saw this, this, this and this in chronological order. But uh, Petra wanders all over the place, almost as if she's being asked questions and then she answers them in, in the witness statement. So this one was taken on the 4th of June, 1996, and the, the end of it says, uh, they went up to a music festival at Bushy Park and they went on a helicopter ride. Martin paid for the ride. And when they finished, he said it wasn't as exciting as he thought it would be. Martin used to get money in notes out of a drawer in a spare room next to the kitchen that led to the toilet. Martin used to put his loose change anywhere, but mainly on the table next to his bed. I never saw Martin with a money box or similar. And then she says, I have heard of a video called The Streets of Laredo, but I've not seen it at Martin's house or watched it with him to my knowledge. And then she goes on talking about a photograph that she's seen of somebody else who looks like Martin, and then the end of the statement. The streets of Laredo is a strange thing for her to just say in a witness statement. What is what is the streets of Laredo? The streets of Laredo is a 1995 miniseries starring James Garner, Sissy Spacek, and Sam Shepard. The story is a rich railroad tycoon hires mercenaries to eliminate a young boy in Mexico who's causing problems for his railroad. Okay, so the street, who, why would this come up? If, if she's just writing out this witness statement, 
Why is she referring to Streets of Laredo? If somebody is asking her questions about Streets of Laredo, where has this come from? Which which policeman asked her about Streets of Laredo? Because if you're dealing with a, a, a story where a rich American hires mercenaries to eliminate a kid south of the border, um, you know, in New South Wales we call Victorians Mexicans because they're south of the border. Um, Tasmania fits into that problem. Is, is, is somebody referring to this film as if it's an allegory just like I've referred to Jack Reacher one shot as an allegory for the same thing. I don't know, but it's a very strange thing. And I would love to speak to Petra and ask her why she included a reference to Streets of Laredo in her witness statement, because it's just something that stands out as being not related to the the context in any way, unless you're talking about somebody rich hiring mercenaries to deal with a, a, a young person south of the border. I don't know why she's put it in there, and I would love to find out why. Is there a lot of witness statements in regards to all that information and the log of of the Dropbox you've got? Is there a lot of different witness statements there? Is there anything else that stands out to you or no? Uh, There are a lot. I'd say there's 35 at least. I haven't counted how many of them. Uh, Nicholas Cheok stands out as he was at the toll booth. So if you're aware of what happened, uh, the, the cafe was shot up. And then the gunman drove uh, out of the cafe back towards the main road. And it was there that he encountered the Mikax and, and shot them. And then he pulls up his Volvo in the exit lane because there's a, a, a gold-coloured BMW parked in the entry lane facing outwards. So it's pulled up the wrong way, blocking traffic from coming in. And the Volvo pulls up next to it, so the, both lanes coming in and out of Port Arthur are blocked at the toll booth, like a choke point. And Nicholas Chiok and his mother and friend are driving in from the main road. And they stop because the entry is blocked by this BMW. And it, it, his witness is, is remarkably clear. He says, I saw a woman about 45 years old sitting in the passenger seat of the yellow Volvo, not the BMW. And there was a blonde man sitting in the driver's seat and... They were arguing. Behind the driver was another man, and he got out of the car and stood in the middle of the road. And the blonde man got out of the Volvo, and they were arguing with each other in the middle of the road. So This is at the toll booth. At the toll booth. So his mum sort of is wondering what's going on, and the couple in the BMW are sort of waving with their hands, go away, shoo, 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 through the windscreen. And so they're like they don't know what's happened. They haven't heard any shots. They they've got no idea what's going on. So they're sort of fumbling with the gear stick to put it in reverse. And another car comes in behind them and blocks them in. So they can't move. So Nicholas is in the passenger seat and he's watching this happening and he sees the blonde man walk around the front of the Volvo, past the woman sitting in the passenger seat, the front passenger seat. He opens the back door of the Volvo behind her and then comes around the boot. So he's done a complete lap around the car and he's carrying now carrying what Chiok describes as an Arnold Schwarzenegger-type gun, probably an AR-15 or an FN foul. He keeps arguing with the man who was sitting behind him in the in the the Volvo, and then raises the gun and shoots the man in the chest. That was uh, Robert um, Robert and Helene Saltzman. So Robert Saltzman's dead. He then goes to the BMW and shoots Jim Pollard and Rose Nixon and then drags Helene Saltzman out of the passenger seat of the BMW of the Volvo uh, and shoots her. By this time, 
the gunshots have alerted everybody in these other cars watching that this is not a place you want to be. They put it in reverse and reverse away, and that's the last they saw of it. We know from Jim Laycock's witness statement that the gunman then dragged the bodies out of the BMW, got in it himself, and drove on to the petrol so station. So left his own vehicle, which was the... What vehicle was... The yellow Volvo was abandoned at the toll booth with the shotgun in the boot and with some jerry cans of petrol in the footwell. So so, so Nicholas just writes all this down and uh, and it's just clear from what he's seen, he's just describing what he saw. He's got no, no agenda or anything. He's not ascribing any... Um, uh, he's not interpreting it in any way. He's just saying, oh, I saw this, this, this and this and it looked like they were having an argument and then... The, gun, the blonde gunman got out of the driver's seat and, and shot everybody. So now I ask you, if you're listening to this, you're uh, at the toll booth and this yellow Volvo comes up and f- for some reason you get into it with your wife and she sits in the passenger seat. You sit behind the driver. In the footwell next to you, there's a hot smoking AR-15 that's just been used to kill 25, 26 people. Uh, why are you sitting in the Volvo arguing with this guy? Why aren't you running away? So here's a question. Did Martin Bryant know Robert and Halit Salzman or Jim Pollard or Rose Nixon? I don't know, but we need to find out. Why did Robert Salzman sit in the back of the Volvo talking to the gunman with a hot rifle loaded sitting beside him? Why didn't he unload it? But why didn't he run away when the argument started? There's there's something really bizarre going on with the toll booth scene, and it really blows the whole official story out of the water. You can read Nicholas Cheok's witness statement; it's it's on the blog, and I've got I'm just shaking my head. I've got no idea what was going on at the time because these people appear to have sinister motives. They appear to know the gunman. Um, in my book. Of course, I've created some fiction for that, but uh, it's a it's a really really big question, and I believe that that is something that any junior lawyer, any defence lawyer, could have got Martin Bryant off on on reasonable doubt, because the there's there's we just cannot explain why these people would sit in the Volvo with him. Uh, it, it defies belief, but there it is. It's in the witness statement, black and white. So going back to it again, so he pulls up into the toll booth, another. Uh, car pulls up at the same time and then who gets out first the uh, who they allege to be Martin Bryan is that who gets out first no the no Robert Saltzman climbed out first from the be- the passenger seat behind the driver yep and then gets out and, and gets in the car of who they allege would be Martin Bryant correct uh, oh sorry you're, you're starting earlier yes I'm starting okay, yes. so so right at the very start there was a BMW there on its own with four people in it Jim Pollard driving Rose Nixon his passenger and in the back seat Robert and Helene Salzman, the very first, okay, before the shooting. And I presume they starts. all know each other, obviously. They're, yes, yeah. They're going somewhere. Correct. Yep. Um, the, the, you can read Sidney Nixon's witness statement. He was Rose's husband, and he owned the Beamer. Uh, you can read his witness statement. They, they were, f- were friends of, um, of Jim Pollard, and he brought his old army buddy, Robert Salzman, and his wife. And so Sidney lent them his Beamer to drive around uh, and see the sights. And then it was parked at the toll booth facing outwards to block incoming traffic. The yellow Volvo pulled up next to it. Which was, they say, would allegedly would be, you know, if it was Martin, it would be allegedly Martin Helene. coming in. Yep, yep correct. Yep, yep. And then Robert and Helene got out of the BMW and got into the Volvo with 
the blonde gunman. And then Nicholas Chiok pulled up. So we there's a bit of a gap. There's several minutes. We don't know how many minutes there were between Robert and Helene climbing into the Volvo and Nicholas Chiok arriving. It could be 30 seconds. It could be up to five minutes. We don't know how long that conversation lasted. But all Nicholas saw was the, uh, the, the argument develop, and then Robert got out of the back seat behind Bryant, sorry, behind the blonde gunman, allegedly Bryant, and then the blonde man got out of the driver's seat in front of him, and then what I've just described happened. It's, uh, it's, it's bizarre. Interesting. And then what he obviously either kept in his vehicle, got back in his vehicle, and then continued on to uh, the seascape where the siege ended at that particular time. Is that how it plays out? Yeah. Uh, Jim Laycock heard the shots at the toll booth and came out of the, the, the Kodak shop he was in and saw the BMW come out of the road, uh, onto the main road, and it then pulled up at the petrol station just nearby and in front of a white Corolla that was driven by a man named Glenn Pears, and his friend Zoe Nixon was in the passenger seat. And the BMW put up to block them. The gunman got out and tried to abduct Zoe. Uh, she fought him off, and Glenn Pears got out of the car and came around to try and fight the gunman, the gunman shot. Sorry, the gunman grabbed him and put him in the BMW's boot as a hostage. Zoe climbed into the driver's seat of the Corolla and tried to either run the gunman over or escape herself. And he just bent his wrist, so the the, the rifle was in his hand, and without even raising it to his shoulder, he just. Uh, Jim says he just raised, lifted up at waist height and fired three times and shot Zoe Hall dead on the spot. Again, I've alluded to the amazing shooting skills that the the gunman had. This is clear eyewitness testimony that he wasn't using the sights. He could shoot from the hip uh, with with experienced accuracy that Martin did not have. Martin had fired 20 rounds through the the AR-15 and was terrified of the recoil. So with Glenn Pears in the boot, the BMW then raced up to Seascape and... Uh, the the shooter stood on the roadside and fired at a number of cars that drove past, but didn't kill anyone. And then, but it created enough noise and and disruption so that the police knew where he was. And rapidly thereafter, the police encircled the the, the seascape and, and held out for the siege. And then in the morning, it burnt down. And what was the seascape like, a, a bed and breakfast? What was it, a motel, or was it something along those lines? Yeah, it was a bed and breakfast. I've got a photo here. So there's a big farmhouse with two outbuildings, as, as they're called, which were the guest houses, guest rooms. So, so, so why did he drive there? What's the alleged, do, do we know, I mean, obviously with the suppression of information, we probably don't know, but why was he on his way to, to seascape for any particular reason? Oh, uh, yes. The, the official story says that David and Sally Martin owned seascape and had a long-term relationship with Martin and his family. And there was bad blood, apparently, between the two. And Martin killed David and Sally uh, between 11 and 12. That's what, from the court documents, the prosecution says that Martin drove from Tarana down to Seascape and killed David and Sally Martin between 11 and 12 and left the bodies there and then went on to Port Arthur and did the those murders. The Martin admits to knowing David and Sally. Martin Bryant admits to knowing David and Sally. They purchased a, a fa- some farmland that was available that his own father had been trying to purchase, but 
uh, couldn't get the money fast enough and David and Sally had bought it. This was the farm next to Roger Lana and Martin knew Roger and his wife and it's, it seems that Martin was keen on Roger's wife uh, in a kind of creepy way and so Roger really didn't, um, didn't like Martin hanging around and so uh, when, when it's understandable that Martin might have been upset that his family didn't buy this farmland because he then missed out on the opportunity to be in close proximity to uh, Mrs. Lana. But the, the, all, the, the problem with, with a lot of this is there's so much rumour and innuendo. And when somebody's demonised in the media like Martin Bryant is, there's always people willing to come forward and say, oh, he said this and he said that and he used to do this and he used to do that. And there's no evidence for that. You, you can't tell whether they're just making it up or whether he actually did it. It's hearsay. So whether Martin Bryant really did hate David and Sally Martin, I can't prove it. There's there's a lot of hearsay. Um, but when you read through the, the interview document where he's interviewed by the police, it doesn't seem like he holds this you know, homicidal rage for them that uh, that you would expect. And the... Just a, one other bit piece of evidence. The timing for that, the, the prosecution said between 11 and 12, um, is incorrect. Um, one of the witness statements says they were waiting for a lift at 10.40 a.m. And I think the car was supposed to arrive at 10.30 to take them to the management seminar up at Swansea. And so the car's 10 minutes late. The guy's outside his house waiting for this car to arrive. And he hears the two gun, gunshots from across the road at Seascape, 10.40, not between 11 and 12, like the prosecution said. So the problem for this is there's another witness statement in there from the attendant at the Tarana petrol station who says that at 10.45, a guy came in in a yellow Volvo with a surfboard on the roof, long blonde hair, and put $15 worth of petrol in his yellow Volvo pulled the two notes, a 10 and a 5, out of his pocket. He didn't use a wallet. So if that was Martin Bryant and he was putting $15 petrol in his car at 10.45, he wasn't anywhere in the area to kill David and Sally Martin at 10.40. So reading the witness statements consistently through, I've, I've read them probably two or three times each, and just to sort of mentally build a picture of what they're saying, linking it together, the timeline. What we've got now is a beautiful thing called Google Maps and directions. So you can go through the timelines and you can go through the witness statements and plug in at this, uh, this place, this place, this place, this place. You can build a map of his, his uh, movements and see, well, this is what the prosecution said, A, B, C, D, E. But when you look at his actual interview, he said he went here, here, here and here. And there's no way the timings match. So the, there's a lot of good witness statements in there. It would be great to get the other witness statements that the police collected from other witnesses. But as I've said before, they're not really necessary to provide reasonable doubt. What we've got is sufficient to provide reasonable doubt. We just need 
the legal means to take a case to the court that the court's going to accept, and I seriously doubt that's going to happen. And it is interesting, um, you know, witness statements as well, and I wanted to, I guess, you know, I can't say too much about it, but I was on a jury myself, and it is interesting. Uh, I think mine went for about three weeks um, a couple of years ago, and uh, it was a, something happened, and, and a man, uh, you know, well, not allegedly now, he was found guilty, but he killed two people. And it's interesting when you talk about witness statements because, you know, and how do we look at witness statements and, and how seriously do we take them? Uh, n- not that means that what they think they saw at the time is not true, but uh, the particular issue that I was dealing with was when you know people were about 20 metres away from a person. And basically, I can talk about it now because it was a traffic accident. Uh, this guy killed two people. Uh, he exited their vehicle and proceeded to, to run away from the scene of a crime uh, after killing two people. I guess at the time, he didn't know anyone was dead. Uh, he was under the influence of drugs. But it was interesting when we actually heard some witness statements uh, uh, during the trial. Uh, it was interesting because what people said they thought he was wearing, uh, only one guy actually picked it correctly out of all the witnesses they actually interviewed. Some people were saying, you know, he had uh, work boots on with blaze orange or yellow, like he'd just come from a work site somewhere. Someone said he had a long sleeves, for an example, and long pants and work boots. And they eventually do show you actually photos of him, and only one guy got it correct. And uh, I-, I know when you come obviously to a trial, this would have been a good year, year and a half after the actual uh, issue had taken place. So obviously people will have to rely on testimony. It's interesting because I want to find it also too from you. Maybe you might know how long after uh, the incident were these witness statements actually taken uh, because that was one thing during the trial, which was open to the public as well. When they actually try and prosecute the case, they actually try and go back to uh, your witness statement and discuss you know, what you actually saw. Uh, is that different from what you're saying now? But And how much weight do you actually put on talking about it a year and a half later as to what was in the witness statements? And sometimes the, the I mean, it must admit lawyers defending both people and, and the Crown prosecuting the case. It's a very interesting witness statements and how they can be picked apart what people think they saw and believe to be true in that split second or that five or ten seconds turns out not to be true but doesn't mean that it didn't happen you know as well so how, how do you take weight to those witness statements i guess is what i'm trying to say it's that's something that i've had to research a lot and what you've described is not unusual at all um, particularly with police interrogations um, i've put a couple of facebook posts up about the syndrome that's called false memory and when you're, you're doing a police investigation or you're being interrogated by the police, it is quite remarkably um, possible that you will begin to believe you did something that you actually didn't do or something was done to you that didn't happen. Um, you can read about these cases. I even refer to it at the end of the book. Uh, there's been a, a couple of journalistic um, uh, exposés on people who believed they were abused and have clear memories of it happening, and it didn't happen. It's a false memory that's been created, and there's this whole branch of psychiatry, psychology, that deals with this. So when you read uh, Nicholas Cheok's witness statement, uh, as I've just described, his his recollection is is very good. And I just want to read one thing here, because I'm I'm, going to come back to Nicholas Cheok, but uh, on the 30th of April, so the day after it all happened, The Hobart Mercury printed an old photo of Martin Bryant on the front page. This was illegal because at that stage, some of the witnesses had not yet been asked to identify the killer, and the photo would have become fixed in the minds of the witnesses. When one witness was asked to describe the clothing worn by the gunman, she described the clothing on the newspaper photo instead of what the gunman had worn. 
So just like you've said your your own witnesses in your own case were confused about what the driver of the car had worn, this is proof that the photo influenced the witness statements. And so when people on my... I get a lot of comments saying, oh, so you're saying the witness statements are wrong when they identified Martin Bryant. I'm not saying they're wrong. They The people may have genuinely believed that that was what they saw. It's interesting because we, we never haven't discussed this particular issue right up until now of actually doing the show. So it's interesting that they've actually... When they talk about what he's wearing, they've labelled what he's wearing in the photo from the paper. Yeah. Very interesting. It is it, it is spooky. Okay, so the, the this little um, bit concludes. The Mercury newspaper was not prosecuted for breaking the law. Uh, but that, So that's the end of that little snippet about the photo, right? But here's the, here's the thing, right? The shooting happened on the 28th and 29th of April. The 30th of April, front page, the killer. Martin Bryant, the man who shot 34 dead, and there's the photo of him wearing a blue, oh, I think it's a blue hoodie. And so as it says here in this, um, in this narrative, one of the witnesses described the gunman wearing a blue hoodie, even though he wasn't, he was wearing a green um, three-quarter length jacket. However, when you look at Nicholas Cheok's witness statement, I've, I've talked about quite a bit of it before. And he where's he says, from? Where, where does he come into the story again, just for the listeners to refresh their memories? Nicholas was at the toll booth, and he saw Robert and Helene Saltzman and Jim Pollard and Rose Nixon killed. So that would have been from a distance? No, he was about three to four metres away. They were pulled up pretty much nose to nose to the BMW because another car had come in behind him and blocked him in. And he was waiting to, to get through the toll booth to continue on yeah. his way. Yeah. yeah, okay. So he then says right at the end of his witness statement, I have since seen photos of Martin Bryant on television and in the newspapers, and I can positively say that the man I saw shoot the people at the toll booth is the same man shown in those photos. But the hair on the man at the toll booth was a bit longer that is shown in the photos. So the date of this witness statement is the 14th of July... 1996. That's 10 weeks after it happened. So Nicholas Cheok's brain has been bombarded with Martin Bryant, Martin Bryant, Martin Bryant, blonde hair, here's the photo. Every newspaper, every TV, this was saturation media at the time. And okay, in his witness statement, I'm, I'm not saying he's lying. He may well truly believe that the person he saw at the toll booth was Martin Bryant. But it is statistically possible that he saw a body double and his memory was later altered, just like countless other people have had their memory, uh, their their memory changed. Like you, you just saw with your own court case, the people saw a guy getting out of a car and running away, and only one of them remembered what correct the the, the boots he had on correctly. So there's there's so much in this case that is really questionable, partly just because of the fallibility of human memory, and this is why it's good to have these witness statements recorded as they are, because they can't be changed later. It's not like a, a witness who can change their mind later on and say, oh, yeah, I was just making it up, or it happened differently to how I thought it did. Um, so, Cheok, even if he says that, even if it was Martin Bryant at the, as, as he said it was, uh, there's so much in his, his witness statement that blows the official story out of the water um, that, but that's just one one um, thing that I, I decided to touch on because it's such a curious thing. The police took ten weeks to interview him, and when he can, he, at, at ten weeks later, his memory he can remember what was said and what was done and who did what in what order. But he's obviously the saturation media with Bryant's face 
Um, we know from separate psychological research that it's possible for memories to be altered, and I believe that's what happened. Um, I'm, I would love to find the truth. I'd, I'm happy to be wrong if I'm wrong, but at least then we would know the truth. Perhaps if the you know the, they could get access to the information that was locked down would be would be the ideal situation. But what about media? Did you get anyone that when you were writing this and getting information, putting it on social media and on Facebook, did anyone sort of give you a buzz or show any interest at all or anything like that? None whatsoever. It's almost like there's a um, a barrier and nobody's going to go near this. I did some research on you know like news.com.au. I got the Twitter handles and the email addresses for the various crime writers that you know, Hugh Remington, um, guys like that. And as the um, in the month of April, when the uh, the anniversary was coming up, I sent them a couple of messages saying, you know, here's some questions about the Port Arthur massacre. Uh, ask your producer if you can do a story on them, and let me know what they say. Didn't get anything. So either they just ignored me. Or they went to their producer and the producer said, this is an area we're not touching, don't even respond to the guy. So it's it's really, really strange how there's just no interest in this case, even though there's these serious questions. What about the firearms too that were used? Um, a lot of people say different firearms. A lot of people say that one of them in particular was handed into the Victorian police, uh, obviously before the shooting, yet allegedly ended back up on the streets in their hands. Uh, of the shooter so uh, or as they say they sang in the hands of martin bryant so is there any is there any evidence or do you find anything on that where uh, what happened with that particular issue with the police and how these firearms ended up in in, in the hands of either the person or martin bryant yes uh, there's there's quite a lot of information about this uh the, what you're talking about is a colt ar-15 sp1 and that belonged to bill drysdale uh, from victoria and in february of 1993 he submitted that to police in an amnesty and uh, when it was on TV he identified it from a mark that a gunsmith had put on on the, the rifle in the past so he knew it was his uh, his AR15 he uh, he said it was very rare uh, in Australia at the time and the the serial numbers were almost identical okay his his rifle had had a collapsible stock and a colt sight just like the massacre weapon had and the police told Drysdale that the rifle had been destroyed at Sims Metal on the 9th of March 1994. However, they later admitted that no records are kept of when individual guns are destroyed, and some guns had been sold to a Bendigo dealer for sale overseas. The history of this rifle was obviously retained by someone in Tasmania Police when it should have been destroyed, is the first clue to what Martin Bryant told his mother had been a police conspiracy. I'm just reading the notes from, uh, from the, the addendum. So the information we've got, Drysdale hands in this AR-15. It was used by the Victorian Police SOG until they got um, Steyr rifles uh, subsequently. So the police then put these old AR-15 rifles in a box and said to somebody, take these down to Sims Metal and have them melted down. And goodness knows what happens after that. They were signed off to say destroyed, but obviously weren't. Um, the the there's stories unverified stories that uh, Victorian police did quite a good trade taking guns on the ferry into Tasmania and selling them to gun dealers as as if it was their own property it wasn't against the law to do that at the time uh, for for a dealer to buy a, a rifle for cash there was no records 
And so there's qu- quite a number of, of semi-automatic rifles, pistols, machine guns, who knows what has come out of the mainland uh, and been sold in Tasmania. So that was then put together. The issue is with this AR-15 is the 4x20 scope on the top. And I've spoken to someone who was a competition shooter with exactly the same rifle in Victoria. And they said that this sight on the top is for long-distance shooting. It's not for close-range shooting. So, but, but, you know, 200 to 500 metres. So if somebody was trying to shoot close-range in the cafe... This rifle, the scope on the rifle would have hindered their view because it's sitting on top blocking the sights. And there's a post on my blog that shows that some people use backup iron sights at 45 degrees on the gun barrel so they can just tilt the gun sideways and use the iron sights at close range. However, one of the witness statements who was uh, shot in the cafe said the, the gunman fired from the right hip. So he wasn't using the scope, but he could score those incredible headshots from the hip, which is a technique called point shooting, which I, I explain on the on the blog. So that's the the, the AR fifteen was found burnt inside the uh, the seascape in the ruins, and was cleaned up, put back together, and uh, the, uh, the the action had been destroyed. So somebody had put a, a an over an overloaded bullet in the chamber, too much powder, and then fired it, and that had caused the 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 chamber of the gun to explode. So it was destroyed, so no forensic um, matching could be done. Um, if you've seen Catching Malat on Stan, the, um, the, they do forensic testing on Malat's ammunition compared to what was found in the Blangalow State Forest. And uh, the, the same forensic, so, um, the forensic police officer, Gerard Dutton, is the, the same guy in the two cases. In Catching Malat, they were able to do analysis on the bullets and the, and the rifle and, and matched it up. But in this case, the, the rifle had been destroyed and and couldn't be matched. The other two firearms is that the shotgun was a USAS-12, a semi-automatic shotgun with a 10-round magazine. Uh, the police said it was not used. They, they said to the judge, actually asked, so it wasn't used then? And and the prosecution said, no, Your Honour, it stayed in the, in the boot of the car, contrary to what Wendy Skur said, as we've said before. Um, the This... USAS-12 is a funny, funny specimen, and if it wasn't for United States gun control efforts, it probably wouldn't have been in Tasmania, because the United States um, can, looked at this weapon, and they said because it had no sporting purpose, it was essentially a destructive device, and they banned it. So the United States bans this particular type of semi-auto shotgun. Where can they sell it? They have to export it. So all of these USAS 12s were exported to Europe, to South America, to Australia. One of them ended up in the gun shop in South Australia and, and was sold to Martin Bryant. The other rifle, uh, as I've said, was a, an FN FAL, serial number G3434, and it's a complete mystery. Uh, nobody knows where it came from. It wasn't uh, one of the types used by the Australian Defence Force, um, and in the interview, Martin Bryant says seven times, never seen it before, never, 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 never. Um, the police say, oh, well, there was this scope found with it. Maybe uh, the, the scope was detached on the, the floor of the interview room, and they hold that up, and he says, no, I've never seen that scope before either. It's nice, though. So who knows where this rifle came from? It was also damaged. It's, it appears to have been held by the barrel 
and had the butt smashed against the ground because the um, the return spring was missing and uh, and the action was damaged. But um, it, it's a complete mystery. Nobody knows where it came from, and I would love to find out more about it. Very, I guess, the most probably pertinent question, I would say, when uh, talking to people of Tasmania, corrections, I guess, especially with Paul Moda, who's doing a movie about the Port Arthur Massacre, when you try and actually get an interview, did you request an interview with Martin, and who will they let Will they let you speak to him? What's the situation with that? Uh, both Paul and I have tried to get an interview with Martin Bryant, and just there's no response to your letters or your, your requests. Um, Carleen was told by a prison officer when she turned up for an interview once that Martin didn't want to see her and there was no appeal, there was no course for, for, for trying to speak to him, pass a note to him. It's very strange. Um, apparently the story I've heard is that f- officially there's a list of visitors that Martin is allowed to see and so if you're not on the list, they're just not going to reply to you and Martin has to put you on the list. And then you have to apply and they have to let you in if you're on the list. So there's like a double set of gates or a double set of obstacles to trying to get in. Because if Martin doesn't know that we're trying to to interview him, how is he going to put us on the list to see him? So they just never respond to you at all saying yes or no? Yeah, nothing at all. And what happens when you do you re- ask again, say, I've correspondence on trying to get an interview with Martin? Have you tried that? No? I personally haven't tried it because I was going to. And then uh, Senator David Lionhelm, when he was a federal senator, uh, had written to the uh, the Tasmanian Justice Department trying to get an inquest for uh, for this whole thing. And he also hadn't received a response either. So if they're not going to respond to a federal senator, um, I'm quite confident they're not going to respond to me. They just throw my letters in the bin and, and continue on as they have. Pretty sad democracy when you, you know, you, they won't even give you a response um, as to whether... You can interview someone or not. But now it's interesting we've talking about this a lot, royal commissions. So obviously both of us know what happened in Christchurch and the tragedy. And they, they announced a royal commission fairly quickly. And uh, we haven't done one in 23 years or 24 years almost. Do you think we need that sort of information to bring the information to light? I can understand how some people may be against that and we'll talk about you know, conspiracy theories or whatever the situation may be. But don't you think, you know, the, the, the people, the victims, is, is it worth doing uh, with getting the right information? And if so, what will be the value uh, of doing something like that? I guess the government and the police could think, well, there's no value in this. This is just going to bring up heartache. It's going to bring up, you know, bad memories for a lot of people. We know, you know, they're saying we know what happens. So that's that's the end of it. And that's where we're going to let sleeping dogs lie. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's two two separate issues here. And there's an inquest and there's a Royal Commission and they're different things. So the, an inquest was begun. Um, a, a lot of people think that, you know, oh, Martin Bright never had an inquest. An inquest was begun by Ian Madison the day after the massacre happened. And it continued. And, and he, as his job is, he gathered evidence and and went through the, the coronial process. But then, due to a technicality of Tasmanian law, once Martin Bryant pled guilty, the the Tasmanian law says that a coronial inquest cannot um, be contrary to a decision of the Supreme Court. So when Martin Bryant pled guilty and the Supreme Court said, we find you guilty, gavel down, then if... Ian Madison had continued his inquest. It was actually illegal for him to say, hey, hang on a minute, there's all of these questions that need to be resolved. So there's, I've got a copy of a letter here written on the 31st of January, 1997. 
and it says that as a result of the outcome of the charges preferred against Martin Bryant in the Supreme Court of Tasmania, I write to advise I do not intend to resume the inquest that I opened on the 29th of April 1996. Uh, basically, any findings I make must not be inconsistent with the decision of the Supreme Court. I've today written to the Attorney General advising my decision. Uh, extend our condolences to you and your loss. So the, the person that he's written to is blanked out. I, I don't know who he's written that letter to. But the, the inquest was commenced, and due to this quirk in the law, uh, it, it was ended. So I don't know if there's any technicalities whereby we can request that that be resumed, but um, certainly if there was the political will, it could be done. A royal commission, on the other hand, is where there's allegations of misconduct or um, or, or abuse of power or corruption or something, and a royal commission is formed to investigate that, and they gather evidence and interview witnesses. So if a royal commission was to be held uh, like they have in, in New Zealand, yes, that's a good thing because the royal commission in New Zealand is trying to figure out what happened, exactly how did the uh, what checks and balances failed that this guy could get his, his firearms. And in Australia... The best, um, the, the best uh, example I could give is the Lint Cafe inquest. So the Lint Cafe siege happened. There was an inquest. And one of your former guests, actually, uh, the guy who'd been the victim of crime, who stabbed people with a, a, a pocket knife. Don Brook. Don Brook, thank you. He had a fantastic comment about this Lint Cafe inquest. And he said the purpose of the inquest is not for the people of New South Wales. It's not for the victims. The purpose of an inquest is for the government to identify what went wrong in whatever situation so that it can be fixed for next time. So it, it, the, the inquest provides recommendations that the government can then use to change policy and training for the police or emergency services or whatever. And you may recall that one of the recommendations of the Link Cafe inquest was that they look at gun laws and lo and behold, boom, the, the fallout from that was they've now restricted more than five sh uh, lever action shotguns based on those recommendations, even though the Link FA did not involve a lever action shotgun and there's no evidence to say that any of them have ever been used in a crime. So if a, so what Don said was that the inquest is for the government to help the police do their job better. And in his mind, and and to some extent in my own mind, it's a bit like if there's a riot inside a prison and the, it's eventually put down and they do an investigation to try and figure out how to stop it happening next time, it, the inquest is not to benefit the people. Um, so to, to call for an inquest um, is kind of the wrong way to go. What we should be calling for is a Royal Commission because we've had a Royal Commission into corruption in the police, the, the Wood Royal Commission. That's the sort of thing because what's happened here is basically a, a travesty of justice. There's, a, there's reasonable doubt. There's all these questions, and and there really needs a retrial. So I don't know what is going to come out of the New Zealand Royal Commission. I'm quite sure the the outcomes have already been fixed, and they just need to um, do all the work to make it look as if they've they've come to this independently. Um, but from a, a a procedural point of view, the inquest was started. It was stopped. You know, on a very dodgy technicality, um, just to say that uh, the, the coroner is subservient to the Supreme Court decisions. Uh, hang on a minute, the coroner is supposed to be independent, and if he's presenting evidence that queries what the court has found, that's fine, just have a retrial. That's what court is for. If the court makes a mistake, okay, 
have a retrial. That's how it works. But in this case, um, there's no political appetite for a retrial, probably because of the political fallout of what's happened. And you must always come back to the eternal question of follow the money. Uh, millions of dollars were raised in donations and, and federal funding. Um, there's a report here that says that several trust accounts, so the Tasmanian state government had money allocated in their budget for disabled people and looking after the homeless and people with special needs and things like that. Uh, apparently in 1997, a lot of those funds were emptied under the pretext of giving the money to the victims of crime. Yet when you read the witness statements from the people who were victims of the crime, they didn't get much money. A lot of them got nothing at all because of the bureaucratic red tape that they had to go through in order to apply and push their cases through and try and get some money. So that's a if, if there was to be a Royal Commission, I would love to have it focus on where the money went because that's something that's reasonably easily traced. Banks keep records and accounts keep records. So... Uh, you know, if if it's possible to go back through the dusty old bank statements and find out where that money went to, I'm quite sure there's some people who really, really don't want a royal commission into it. It's just concerning, I guess, for democracy to lock up information for 75 years. I mean, that's that's probably the one of the major concerns for me. I think would be for you know a lot of people as to why the information's not not allowed out. I mean, I'm not saying they're hiding anything. I'm not, I'm not even alluding to that. But why would you lock information down for 25 years and then a further 75 years? That's uh, Yeah, the, the, the official story is we don't want to cause upset to the families of the victims. And that's true. I don't want to either. Uh, but but the, the thing is, the process of an inquest or a royal commission or investigation, it does provide closure. Um, there's a lot of people. A lot of survivors are very angry um, at various people. Wendy Skur was furious at the police and the state government and the emergency service for for essentially traumatising the people who were who, who were left alive. Um, I've just uploaded a video onto my YouTube channel of a, a person being interviewed, and they said uh, early on in the night, a fire truck drove past the Port Arthur from Seascape, so it drove south. And the driver was yelling out, he's out, he's out, they don't know where he is, he's out. And so the people who were there in the dark with no police around, no emergency services, it's been hours since all of these dead people have been killed and there's no help. And now somebody says he's out, is he coming our way? We don't know, where is he? Um, they were traumatised. I'd love to speak to somebody on that fire truck to find out what the story was there. Um but Wendy Skur was part of that. She heard that those shouts and was very critical of the, the police and the emergency and she services. was one of the emergency service workers, wasn't mm. obviously working she, on people that... Yeah, she was a designated shot, first yeah. aid officer on site. So she, you can imagine there was a tiny little first aid kit and she's trying to deal with 29 people who've been shot with a semi-automatic rifle. Uh, so that they were trying to you know, find bandages, trying to make bandages, trying to um, console people. And and in the trauma, people go into shock. And then just when things have started to quieten down and there's a semblance of normality, this fire truck comes through and stirs it all up again. And that was some at some point after he's gone to the seascape? Was that that night as the hours went on? Mm, right, yeah. yeah. So what would you, I guess, finishing off, what would you like to see for the future? What would you think would be appropriate in this situation? Uh, for anybody who comes in contact with Martin Bryant, uh, let him know that people are trying to, to help him. 
Uh, he needs that emotional support, even if he doesn't do anything about it. Just the fact that you know people on the outside world are concerned about him um, would certainly help him in that in that situation. Um, we definitely need a retrial. The evidence needs to be presented in court. See, the pro- the key problem is when he pled guilty. There's no cross examination of the evidence. The prosecution can can get up and say, you stole a jet fighter and bombed all these people and killed them. And there's no way for you to say, no, I didn't. There's no evidence that I was doing that. So if there'd been a real trial, the defence lawyer could have said to the prosecution, you've said A, B, C, D, but this other evidence says that Martin wasn't there or Martin was seen somewhere else at the time or he didn't have the money to pay the entry fee to get in. So... From a from a procedural point of view, if there'd been a, a proper trial in inverted commas where the evidence gets cross-examined, this I'm confident this would have been thrown out as there's reasonable doubt that this is the guy. Um, the police need to go back and do more investigation and try and find somebody who actually did it. But what is if the information say it did come back and and it did come back that Martin was guilty and Martin did it? Would would that be? Would do you think uh, that would be? You would accept that? Yep, well, I absolutely would. I'd be no. Um, I'd never be more happy to be wrong, and I would donate all the proceeds from book sales to a charity. That's that's um, beyond question. Um, I haven't spent any money yet. I'm still toying what I should do with it. Uh, because if if there comes an opportunity with with the changing political scenes to to mount a, a, a trial or a legal challenge, I'd be the first to donate. Um, I certainly intend to put in some money to the, the the GoFundMe for Paul Motors movie because he needs to raise some funds for that. And if Martin was found to be guilty, I would be extremely surprised on on the evidence because if there's an if there's another explanation that ties all of these questions together of him doing it, wow, okay, then that's the truth. It's it's stranger than fiction. Um, just one other, one other thing from Petra's witness statement. I should have mentioned this in the beginning, but I didn't. Petra says she was with Martin for four days and four nights before the shooting happened. So there was Anzac Day, then there was a couple of days, and then she left uh, early in the morning of the Sunday, and then the massacre happened. At about 12 o'clock, someone made an anonymous phone call to the Nubina police station, the local police station down there, saying there was a stash of heroin at Saltwater Creek, which is a convict tourist site, 35 minutes drive on a dirt road, the opposite direction to Port Arthur. It is literally in the middle of nowhere. There's skinty radio reception. They didn't have mobile phones back then. So the only two police in the area get in their patrol car and they drive 35 minutes the wrong way to check out this stash. They get on the VKC, the uh, the police um, communications thing, and they say it's soap powder. And the police dispatcher says there's reports of shooting at Port Arthur. Get down there. So they get back in their car. They drive 45 minutes back, uh, 35 minutes back to Nubina. Then they drive another 10 minutes or so to Port Arthur and arrive at Seascape just after the um, all those cars have been shot outside Seascape. So somebody lured the police away at the perfect time. And there's some questions here. First of all, who planted the soap powder at Saltwater Creek for the police to find? So it's in the police evidence. The police witness statement says we found soap powder. 
who put it there? It wasn't Martin Bryant because he was with Petra for four days beforehand. So either he didn't do it or she did it with him and she's lying. So she got away with conspiracy to murder and got off scot-free. The other challenge is the Nubina police station phone number had recently been changed. We didn't always have eight-digit phone numbers. We used to have seven-digit phone numbers. And then they added the nine to the front, and now we've got all kinds of different eight-digit phone numbers. So the Nubina police station phone number had recently been changed, but back then they didn't have the internet. You had to publish the phone number in the white pages and the yellow pages. You remember those big, thick books we used to have that you (laughs) you put behind the door or wherever? So that hadn't been published yet, so very few people knew what the direct number for Nubina Police Station was. So the person who phoned in this drug tip-off didn't phone Triple O. They phoned the police station itself. And that police station also got a phone call from Seascape at the start of the siege. So the, whoever was in, whoever the gunman was inside Seascape rang Merrin Craig, who was one of the police officer's partner, fiancé, and spoke to her and made some crude jokes and indicated that he'd harmed or, or hurt her her partner and then hung up. So whether if it was the same person, they had somehow found out the unpublished number for Nubina Police Station, or if it was two different people, both of them had found out what the number was. So this hoax drug tip-off um, and this phone call to Nubina adds to the mystery because... Petra's witness statement says, I was with Martin for four days beforehand. The police went up there. They say they found something that had been planted there. Which brings me to another question. There's no need to plant something there. Right? If you're going to decoy the police away, all you need to do is make the phone call. The police have a duty to follow it up. And if the police had turned up there and, and searched the site and there's nothing there, your objective as the hoaxer is already completed. The police are out of the picture. To go to that out-of-the-way spot and drop a glass jar of soap powder is like you're driving an hour and 40 minutes each way to do something that's not even necessary. Why? Who did that? I don't know. It smacks of like a military-style mind that's dotting every I and crossing every T and making sure there's something for the police to find. I, I don't have any other explanation for it. And in the book, it's easy enough because I'm... It's fiction. I'm operating on the assumption that the person who did the shooting was a military-trained person and they went down there two days beforehand and planted it there for the police to find. But in reality, we don't know who put it there. We don't know who made that phone call to the police, but the fact that they knew the new phone number raises questions about how they obtained it. All right, but to finish off, anything else to to add or anything you'd like the listeners to to Uh, know? Um, I could talk about this for a week. Uh, there's so much that we've yet to cover, little things, but we've covered the main the main issues. Um, so if you if you would like a uh, some you know some weekend fiction, I'm not saying that the book is anything to do with with fact, but it raises the questions. It illustrates the the the, the weaknesses, the questions, the reasonable doubt. Um, so I would love it if you read the book. Um, the the main thing is to get the message out there. I want as many people in the world to understand that there is reasonable doubt um, that that Martin Bryant is guilty. Um, I'm happy to be proved wrong. I'm happy to be proved right. I just want the truth. And I think most people believe the victims deserve the truth as well. 
our morality as a people, as a country, as human beings. We deserve the truth. That's something that's that that sense of justice is deep within all of us. And certainly, looking at the evidence here, there's a deep sense of injustice that's been carried out. Uh, I do share the Facebook posts of a group called the Innocence Project, which is a, a volunteer um, place that helps people who are wrongly convicted um, overturn their convictions. And when you read some of these stories, it's it's easy enough to see how witness statements can be uh, can be dubious. People can be convicted on the flimsiest of evidence, and just because they can't afford a decent lawyer, um, they they get put away for life. And so, if if you please. Follow me on Facebook. I'm not doing it just for the for the vanity of having heaps of followers. I share information that's relevant. Um, I share information that can can help other people, and uh, if it's possible, um, talk to your family and friends about it. Just oh, not even about the theories. Nothing I've hear hints at a conspiracy. I'm just saying there are questions, valid questions, and there's reasonable doubt. So, if you have any questions about it, if you've got evidence, uh, if you know somebody who was there. I would love to speak to them. That's completely anonymous. Uh, Like you said, I haven't dropped any names here. Uh, I've got a ProtonMail account. ProtonMail is Swiss encrypted um, email, so it's uh, it's untraceable. And if you set up a ProtonMail account and you send an email to me, it doesn't go through the... um, through the, the the email system, it just stays on their server. So if you've got information you want to send to me, set up a ProtonMail account, email it to me, o underscore zim at protonmail.com. Uh, your confidentially, your identity is absolutely assured. I'm I'm not interested in anybody being named unless you want to you know, have have credit for it. So there's we've touched on the morgue truck, we've touched on Seascape, we've touched on the evidence, we've touched on the witness statements. If there's got to be people out there who know things. The people who were involved from a government level have got to be close to retirement now. Um, clear your conscience. Honestly, if you know that there's something that doesn't gel with the official story, anonymously get it off your chest before you, uh, you know, before you move on. It, it's going to be good for you and it's going to help set the record straight. Uh, if you've got any other questions, feel free to contact me. The, the, the book is there and I think it's a fair representation of what could likely have happened given what we know, albeit suspect and questionable as it is. And what's happening with Paul Motor? Is he going to definitely getting that uh, that uh, movie out about Port Arthur? And is there a projected, I guess, release date for that movie? Or uh, I, I don't know about release date yet. I know they are filming. They have they started filming, and he's about to release a, a, an Indiegogo fundraiser with some T-shirts and things to to um, raise funds. Um, and so. To, to be part of that, you just uh, look up Wasp, the Port Arthur Massacre, on, on Facebook. Um, I personally don't agree with some of his interpretations. That's fine. He's he's telling the story as he's telling it. But for, he has my full support, and I cannot wait to see it when it comes out. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting when it comes out. Uh, I wonder you know, what the media and general public uh, will think, depending on what the summation of the, of the actual storyline is. So Oscar Zimmerman joins me here on AHP to have a chat about his book, The Second Empty Chair, The Port Arthur Paradox. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. 